Hey guys, and welcome to the Hack My Homestead podcast. This is Sean Mills, and today is Monday, October 2nd, 2023. And today I figure I'd just step away from the permaculture talk a little bit and talk a little bit about the current, a few current events that are going on and, and my thoughts about them. So as you know, on this podcast, we really try to focus on what we can do around the homestead to improve our lives, you know, inside and in the immediate surroundings of our households. But at the same time, I think we need to keep an eye open on what's going on around us because, well, those things that are going on around us could easily impact us at the homestead level. And I'm not saying that any of these things that I'm going to talk about today are specifically in that category, but I just wanted to take a little bit of a break from permaculture and talk about some current events. So that's what we're going to do. My three main uh, targets today are going to be the uh, fact that the government shutdown was averted, what a government shutdown is and, you know, why it matters, I guess. The UAW or United Auto Workers strike and the new uh, Bloomberg study that just came out that evaluated the S&P 100 or the 100 top companies in the United States, uh, their hiring practices in 2021 in the wake of the George Floyd murder, uh, Black Lives Matter protest uh, gaining speed again. If I recall correctly, I think the BLM uh, was actually established during the uh, Ferguson, Missouri. I don't recall the gentleman's name that was killed by the police there, but uh, I believe it started there and then really renewed interest uh, and and became really widespread after George Floyd up in Minneapolis. So uh, starting with the shutdown. So my daughter has asked me yesterday, what is a government shutdown and why does it matter? And I thought it was a really good question because the reality is, is it doesn't really matter. Um, what happens is that you get certain parts of the government that don't have appropriations set aside for them, which is Congress's job. So Congress doesn't do their job. And in return, uh, certain public services that the government funds uh, goes away and certain federal employees aren't allowed to, uh, you know, come to work or maybe they're asked to come to work, but told, Hey, you're not going to get paid until we, uh, get this shut down, you know, taken care of. So I remember, um, the big one that happened several years ago, I think it was during the Obama administration. Cause it always kind of seems like when a democratic president's in office, uh, the Republicans all of a sudden have a problem with, with spending and want to shut down the government to get their special, uh, demands related to spending met, you know, they forget about all those things. The moment that a Republican president is in office. Uh, and I don't recall the democratic, when the Democrats have power and a Republican sitting behind the big chair in the oval office, uh, them forcing the government to quote unquote shut down. But I digress. Uh, and the reason why I told my kids that it's not really a big deal is that, you know, folks have to go without a paycheck for a little while. And then they get that money when the government opens back up, whether they worked or not. So I remember the last big one, uh, one of the big deals was the uh, TSA agents were asked to show up even though they were not going to be getting paid. Uh, But the um, FAA 
uh, air traffic controllers were actually put on a rotating schedule. So the folks that violated your Fourth Amendment rights so that you could get on the plane, uh, they were there in force. And the folks that made sure that your plane lands and takes off on time uh, and make sure that, you know, the traffic is safe around the airport, uh, well, they were, you know, not furloughed, but like they were on like a three-day-a-week rotating schedule. So they weren't working their, their standard schedule. Uh, and then when, when the shutdown was over, uh, everyone was paid as if they, they came to work every day. And the other thing I thought was interesting is I remembered uh, certain uh, national parks being shut down. You know, like the, uh, the park rangers were told not to come to work during the shutdown because, hey, they weren't going to get paid. Now, again, they got paid at the end of the deal just as if they had showed up every single day of the shutdown uh, for work. And um, I just thought it was interesting because I, I remember also reading that the lawmakers' salaries and benefits are fully paid, fully funded, uh, even in the event of a government shutdown. So when these folks that are up here making, you know, one hundred seventy thousand plus dollars per year, uh, can't do their job in appropriating the funds that they have taxed away from the citizens. Um, then they get paid and the folks making, you know, 40 grand a year, uh, working at the post office and things like that don't, but they really do. Right. So that's the weird thing. It's like, there's all this doomsday conversation about what happens during a shutdown, but they never let any of the actual really bad things happen. You know, they don't ground all flights because the TSA and the FAA employees don't come to work. Right there now, there would be something where you know I talk a lot on this podcast about people actually having to deal with the consequences of the choices that they make, and I'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the UAW strike. But I thought, you know, you've got these people that they make sure that the common man is impacted just enough to know what's going on, right? Oh man, my flight was delayed or canceled, or I had this trip planned to take the kids to Yosemite and then I can't now, uh, or Yellowstone or whatever, you know, like there's a, there's enough impact to where, you know, we can have arguments, right? So one side can pick one side and the other side can pick another side and they can have an argument over whose, whose fault it was. And it was always the other side's fault rather. Uh, but you know, not, but not any real big impacts because we don't want to make an impact so big that people actually say, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe the politician is actually the problem here. And maybe we should get them the heck out of office and get into someone that's actually going to do their job. You know, um, they, they're, they're really, really good at that. They're really good at making sure that we're annoyed and we hear about it in the news all the time. And I think that's another big piece of it. I think that if every one of these Congress uh, congressmen and women that are leaders that spend all this time getting interviewed about a shutdown and whose fault it is and, and what they're trying to get uh, accomplished and, and, you know, we need to stop sending all this money to Ukraine or whatever the heck that they're complaining about today, even though it wasn't a problem a month ago. 
um, you know, they're grandstanding, they're pandering, and they're being given this platform to do so. And I think that the platform is part of the problem as well, you know. So the platform wants to hear what the, what the politicians have to say about them not doing their job instead of holding them accountable for not doing their job. And I think that a lot of these guys, they just pick something to be mad about so that that can be the thing that they talk about while, you know, they screw over um, the folks that are, that, are, that are either A, voting for them or B, employed by them. And, you know, I say screwed over because, look, if, I, if I'm making 40 grand a year and living paycheck to paycheck and you tell me that I'm not going to get a paycheck for a month, that's a problem for me. That's a big problem for me. And I understand that I've lived that life before where I remember my first sales job, my uh, boss. So what would happen when I was in sales is that I worked and I would end up spending my own money for things. Um, and honestly, I didn't have to, I just didn't know any better. And my boss, uh, allowed me to not know any better. Like he wanted me to be poor. Uh, so he would let me do things like take, come out of my own pocket to pay for lunch for a client that he was at, by the way, with his company credit card. And then I'd have to submit my expense report and it would go through the process and then they'd send the check back down. And then I, I can, I remember going into his office and being like, man, can you check on the, the, the status of my expense reports? My last three weeks, I haven't gotten anything and I got rent coming up and I'm out of pocket like 900 bucks and I was making 36 grand a year. You know, I'm out of pocket and out of pocket after taxes, $900 to a billion dollar a year company. And I'm making 36 grand a year. Um, so I know how that was. And then, and then, you know, I'd be infuriated when he opened his desk drawer and pulled my last three expense report checks, paper checks out, you know, um, oh God, that, that irritates me. But anyways, I remember living that life and I remember living in a scenario where, you know, if I had a tire, if I had a flat that couldn't be patched, um, I'm, I'm in a big, big, I got a problem. Like I can't afford to buy a new tire and I definitely can't afford to buy two new tires because I'm not supposed to replace the back left tire without replacing the back right tire or whatever the rule was, you know, um, that was, oh, and by the way, I was driving my personal vehicle onto job sites. So I picked up nails pretty regularly. Um, but anyways, I, understand how that's an impact. But I also know that there's all of these different programs out there specifically to help out uh, folks that are going through things like that. And then again, when they're, um, when the shutdown is over, they get all their back pay and all their back benefits and everything. So, so yeah, a shutdown reduces cash flow for a certain period of time, but it doesn't reduce the amount of money that these people make. Okay. And so again, I go back to, it's just enough to irritate people so that they get mad and they blame the other side for the problem, but not enough that they get so mad that they actually start doing some research and say, okay, hold on. What is this? You know, so imagine 
the FAA and the TSA completely shut down and air traffic, commercial air traffic traffic in the United States was grounded during a government shutdown. Well, in that scenario, people would be sitting up and saying, oh, okay, hold on. What is going on here? And you might be sitting there listening to this podcast saying, well, I don't travel for work by plane. I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me. Well, you don't know how many packages get moved from one part of the country to the other by uh, commercial airlines. You don't know how many, how much food is moved, how many um, uh, drugs are moved from one part of the country to another by commercial airlines. And I'm telling you that whatever walk of life that you're in, if commercial air traffic was shut down, you would know about it. You would see it in the prices and availability of all kinds of goods all over the U S but, but, and I think that if that happened, people would actually sit up, start paying attention, stop listening to whatever bull crap the news is feeding them that day and saying, hold on, what's really going on here? Okay. Congress, the constitution requires you that you have the power of the checkbook. So the constitution requires you to basically spend the money and, and and you also uh, are the person that, you know, sets the taxes. Like that's what the constitution allows you to do. And so, you know, constitution and the amendments, obviously. Um, and so, we're not getting penicillin delivered to Georgia this week because you aren't doing your job. Well, you know, the reason why we shut this down was because we don't like uh, these, uh, you know, we don't, we, we want a full accounting of the money that's gone to Ukraine. Well, then why didn't you demand a full accounting for the money when you set it up to go there? Why would you do this after the fact? If you thought accounting for billions of dollars was important, then why why would you send the billions of dollars without making that one of the conditions of receiving the billions of dollars? You know, it's a grant unless you don't do X, Y, and Z, and then it becomes a loan. And here's the interest rate. Sign at the bottom, please. Right? Really, really easy. Really easy concept and really easy to do. Um, if the spending bills weren't, you know, thousand page long, uh, pork filled pieces of garbage that people want to go pull $5 billion worth of spending out of and hold up, uh, the rest of the, the situation. And, and again, if it was a real problem, if they were really impacting their constituents and knew that, you know, their constituents were going to hold them accountable for what they did, well, then they sit down and say, okay, look. These are the things we aren't going to budge on. Those are the things that you aren't going to budge on. Let's come to a compromise. And this is the deadline for us to come to a compromise. Oh, and by the way, if we can't come to a compromise, well, maybe we shouldn't be spending money money on it, right? If we, if the representatives of the people can agree to spend money in a certain way, then we don't spend the money on it. But here's what we don't do. We don't agree to fund the program and then every three years, when someone that we don't like is in office, we decide that we're going to defund the program or we're going to withhold a continuation of the funds to the program. We either say, here's how we're going to fund the program. And if it doesn't work the way that we say, then the program gets deleted. 
And if it works just fine, then here's where the money comes from to continue to fund the program, right? But again, they, they set all of these things up specifically so that they can create their own problems and they can have this fight on a schedule. They know what the schedule is. You think that there's a you think there's going to be a shutdown next year in the middle of the elections? I don't think so. So anyways, I'll get off of that. That that's my those are my thoughts on the shutdown and um, you know, why the ability to shut down spending within the government exists. It exists to get people on TV, to drive ratings. You know, if you don't think that one hand isn't holding the other, I've got some beachfront property in Arizona I'd like to sell you. So let's move on to the UAW strike. So if you haven't been paying attention, uh, the UAW strike is the United Auto Workers. They are negotiating their deals with uh, Stellantis, Ford, and GM, which Stellantis is kind of the remnants of the old Dodge uh, company and, you know, Dodge Chrysler and all that. And so, uh, so, so as, as part of their negotiation tactics, and this happens you know, it's not uncommon for this to happen. They say, okay, well, you know, if we can't come to a deal by this date, we're going to stop working until we get a deal done. And now because this is a kind of an odd situation where the new president of the UAW, who by the way, campaigned on, I'm going to be a hardliner here. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight to get you this money. Okay. Um, they, they decided they were going to actually combine the negotiations like and ha- I'll have all three of them happen at one time and they were going to strategically strike um, at these different places at the same time to you know kind of drive drive home you know what they're demanding and all that and so um, and, and so where we are now is essentially they're saying hey look uh, over the next four years we want a 40% increase in wages you know not 40% tomorrow but by the end of the fourth year of this of this deal, we want a 40% increase in our wages. We arrived at that number because that's how much you have increased uh, your CEO pay, uh, you know, over the last X number of years. You have, uh, you know, you've delivered, in your own words, record profits. Um, and, you know, we want those profits to be shared back with our workers, right? And all of those are reasonable demands. Now, whether those are the correct numbers, whether, you know, they're ignoring things like uh, research and development and taxes and, and, and all of those other things that are actual cost of the business, all of those are, you know, irrelevant to at least my conversation and the way I'm trying to frame this conversation right now. They sat down and said, hey, this is what we demand, and then the company turned around and says, well, this is what we're willing to do, okay? And the nice thing about a strike is that it impacts both sides, right? So the workers walk off the job and stop getting paid. Now, what the union does is they build this big um, war chest of funds so that during the strike, they can still pay some of their people some money, uh, they can also uh, pay people to be on the picket line, right? So the people that are standing out front uh, screaming at the people walking through and going to work are getting paid to do so, uh, which, by the way, I think is an interesting scenario because a lot of times those, and I've, I've crossed picket lines personally 
uh, oddly enough, while I worked for a union company that had a CBA negotiated by a union and our company, uh, but a different union did not like the idea that our employees were doing work that they felt like they should have been doing. And so they were picketing us. Okay. Really funny. And so, um, so anyways, it's just, it's, you know, I've lived on, I've lived that side before and I've experienced having to actually cross a picket line before. And, um, you know, what I found was that these guys come after you and then someone else, so while they're coming after you, someone else is recording the situation. Okay. And the recording that goes out is never the entire situation. It's just the edited part that they want to see that's beneficial for their purposes. And the, and again, the messaging they're trying to get out there, just like a news release, right? We're not going to tell you the whole story. We're going to just give you the facts that we believe help our cause. Uh, and, and, you know, you got to have a skill, uh, 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 what am I trying to say? A healthy level of skepticism. Uh, anytime you're dealing with any of this stuff, because you have to understand that these guys are, you know, they've got it, they've got an agenda and, and, and they're not going to put out truthful information that doesn't, uh, move their agenda forward. Right. And you can't be mad at them. It's just, it is the way that it is. Right. So when I go back to the whole thing about, you know, uh, shared, impacts. Um, the impacts of a strike hit the workers that aren't working, but they also pretty heavily impact the companies as well. The companies cannot create new product. And so what a lot of them will do is they'll go out and they'll try to kind of build up a backlog of product and have that to kind of sell through while they're working on the negotiation and I will say that I think that the UAW president was smart in not just completely walking off the job at one, right? What he did was is he selectively walked off the job at all three. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, I think the result of that is you get production continuing but at a, a slowed pace. So the... <clears throat> the the companies can see the impact that's coming. They can see the impact that's happening. And they can also um, work through those impacts as, you know, as they're happening. And um, again, they can plan for them. Then they can, uh, you know, they get them. And then they can decide whether the continuation of the impact is something that they're willing to take or not. <clears throat> and so it's like, okay, well, you know, they could say, all right, well, look, if we go to 30% instead of 20%, but not all the way to their 40%, um, that's going to cost us a billion dollars over the next three years. But if we keep, if we keep this strike going for another two weeks, that's going to cost us a billion dollars this year. Right. And, and, and potentially some brand loyalty, some opportunity cost, right? Now, maybe someone that would have bought a car from them buys a car from Toyota and then begins to take their Toyota to a Toyota dealership 
for service instead of to the Ford dealership where they would have taken their Ford car had the Ford car been available, right? So, you know, there's, I'm sure there's accountants, some, some forensic masters out there that are kind of going through all of that stuff. They're going through, uh, all the different impacts and modeling out what's going on and modeling out, you know, if we did this for this amount of time, and then we did that for that amount of time, this is what the cost would be. Um, and, and so the, the company is sitting there, uh, doing these calculations over time, just like the auto workers union is doing these calculations. So the auto workers union is sitting there saying, okay, well, we're running through, um, you know, X amount of our war chest every day. And after this many days, uh, we won't have a war chest or our war chest will be X amount. And then of course, cause they're doing it with all three of them, they are sitting there saying, okay, well, we're getting some headway with Ford and with Stellantis, uh, but nothing's really happening with Chevrolet or vice versa, you know? And so, so it becomes a chess game. And I think that that's perfectly fine. I think it's perfectly fine for a group of employees to elect someone to negotiate on their behalf as a block, right? Because a group of employees has more power to negotiate than a person does. And uh, for that block to negotiate hard with the company and for those two entities to do their own calculations as, as offers are batted back and forth across the table until one or the other looks at the other one's last submittal and says, it's not what we want. But at this point, it's the right move for the company, for the employees, and for the shareholders to accept it, okay? And I've seen this meme going around about how the Dodge Brothers, uh, who were like 10% owners in the Ford Motor Company back in the early 1900s, actually sued Henry Ford because he wanted to essentially plow all of the profits back into the business uh, to hire more employees and to pay them more to increase production. And the Dodge brothers sued and said, look, no, no, hold on. Your job is to make a profit. Uh, and that profit should result in dividends to, to, to the owners of the business. And we're a minority owner of the business and we demand that we get paid our profits. Now, Henry Ford knew that the Dodge brothers were actually using the profits from Ford company to build a a competitor. Um, which is part of the reason why he wanted to not issue those dividends. And the Supreme Court, I believe it was, may have been the Michigan uh, Supreme Court, but I think it was the U.S. Supreme Court, eventually said, hey, your job as a corporation is to... um, is to uh, you know deliver shareholders maximum profit, and we will give you and the board of directors a lot of leeway in making decisions for an organization, uh, as long as your stated goal is to the you know profit of the shareholders. So you want to give all your employees a hundred percent raise, well, as long as you can state that that's you think that that's going to result in more profit to the shareholders, then go ahead. You want to cut all their pay by fifty percent. Well, as long as you can state that that's for the benefit of the shareholders, then go ahead, right? 
And there are different times when those actions can be uh, viewed differently by different sets of shareholders. And some of the shareholders say, hey, hold on. No, we're going to file a lawsuit saying that we don't think that was in the best interest. Um, that we, we think that was in the best interest of something other than uh, the owners, a.k.a. shareholders of the, of the company. And now you have to prove that or you have to pay us as if you didn't make that decision, right? Um, and so, you know, that's not new. That's not new information. It wasn't like corporations did were able to do whatever they wanted to until that Dodge versus Ford case. Uh, and then after that, they had to do, you know, only the only thing they could do is act in the fiduciary, uh, what it was in the fiduciary best interest of the shareholders, right? Like that was always a case. Um, if you are a corporation and you have a board of directors and you have shareholders, then the board of directors should make decisions with the shareholders, AKA the owners, uh, profits in mind. Okay. That's not like this grand brand new thing that was invented in 1910 or whatever. So, uh, I digress and, and move back to the, to the story. The problem that I see with all of this is that, both sides of the entity, both the corporation and the union, want to use the government to insulate them from the uh, from the impacts of the situation that they've gotten themselves into. And that's where I have a problem, right? So I did see where I think it might have been Gavin Newsom. I could be getting this story completely wrong, but I'm just going to say it the way I remember it. Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill in California that was put forth by the California State Senate that would have paid striking um, union workers unemployment while they were on strike. I think I have that right. I'm pretty sure I have the second part of it right. I'm not sure if it was Gavin Newsom in California. But so there's a there's a scenario where the unions want the government to step in and subsidize their workers who are not working to tip the balance of that negotiating table towards them and away from the the corporation. And then, of course, the corporations want the government to step in and insulate them from, you know, impacts of other poor business decisions. And in the case of Chevrolet and and, uh, you know, Chrysler, uh, that led them straight to bankruptcy. Right. And so again, I, I, I agree with the UAW's stance of we're going to strike until we get what we want. And I agree with, uh, you know, the automaker stance of, well, we're, you're not getting what you want, but we're, we'll still continue to negotiate. And, uh, and by the way, um, if, these 20,000 workers strike, then those 50,000 workers will eventually run out of parts and they'll be laid off. So essentially you're striking uh, for them too. And then the UAW wants to come out and say, oh, they're trying to use it as an intimidation tactic. Okay. Oh, hold on. If I work in the uh, shop, part of the plant that puts the door on the car and I can't do that until the door is painted and the paint shops on strike, well, once I run out of painted doors, I don't have a job anymore. I don't have anything to do. And to expect the company to pay me to not 
do work when my brothers in the UAW uh, that are responsible for painting the doors that I then put on the car aren't painting doors anymore. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. And so, um, so anyways, like I said, I've been part of crossing a picket line before. Um, it can get really nasty. Uh, I really don't like the idea of the union being able to pay the people that are doing that. Cause then essentially what you're doing is you're paying people to, uh, uh, to be violent because I, I look, I'm telling you, I've seen lots of picket lines. I've never seen anyone cross one without at least at a minimum, the threat of violence implied or explicitly stated. Um, but so yeah, I'll drop that one. I know I'm, I'm running a little bit long today. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, the next one is this, uh, story that's come out by Bloomberg where Bloomberg reviewed the S and P 500. Uh, I'm sorry, the S and P 100. And, uh, you know, so there's a rule in the United States, the employ equal employment opportunity commission requires any employer with over 100 employees to report on the statistics of, uh, their new hires. Okay. Um, now if I recall correctly, the form that you fill out, uh, to provide that information to the EEOC is optional. And I believe even when you're filling out the application, uh, filling out that part of it's optional, to be honest, I have not filled an application out in a really long time. And so I could be totally off based on that or could be, you know, that could have been the, the, the scenario 15 years ago and it's just not that now. But in, 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 in any case, what happened is that 88 of the 100 uh, companies, their data was reviewed. And the other 12, I guess, either they had changed the metrics or changed how they're reporting or for whatever reason, Bloomberg didn't review those. So they, they reviewed the 88. And those 88 corporations added, and this is, I'm using the verbiage from the article, added something like 326,000 jobs in 2021, right? Um, now, we don't know how many of those jobs were jobs that existed in 2020 that were COVID casualties that were brought back. Um, we don't know if they brought back all the COVID jobs and then plus 326,000, but the verbiage from the article is they added 326,000 jobs. And the headline was 94% of those positions were filled by people that were not white, right? People of color. Um, and so there's a couple different things to unpack there. So I'll just take the surface level outrage that's happening right now. Oh, I can't believe, you know, that's just racism. If you're not hiring someone because they're white, that's racism. Well, we don't know that they didn't hire someone because they were white. Now I can tell you from being in corporate America and working with some rather large entities, um, that especially the further up the organization you go, the more likely it was in the last three years for you to get a promotion over someone else. Uh, if you were a person of color. And that's not a statement about those person's ability to do the job. Uh, but I know several people that have that left organizations because they were promoted beyond their abilities uh, because of their race. 
I know several other people that left organizations, and I'm talking about multi, multi, multi-billion dollar, you know, Forbes 50 companies here. Uh, I know people, personally know people, I mean, this isn't anecdotal, uh, that left companies that they felt like they were the most um, qualified person for the job that was being filled, and that someone that was obviously less qualified was given the job uh, because of their race. And, and again, when I say, I'm not saying they couldn't do the job. I'm just saying if you've got five candidates, uh, that, you know, and, and they're they're if you were to match up their work history and their education against the requirements of the job and three of the five were 10 for 10 matches. And then one of the five was an eight for 10 match but was Hispanic. And then the last one uh, was maybe a six to 10, uh, but was black. Um, That the eight for 10 Hispanic guy was probably the most likely person to get the job. And as a matter of fact, I remember going to several meetings and talking to people where I was told before the interviews were even done, uh, which and I wasn't interviewing for these jobs. I just worked for other people or worked with other people in in the departments, uh, specifically at major power companies, uh, where I was told before the interview, the first round of interviews were even done, who was going to get the job, and they were going to get the job because they were black or because they were you know Hispanic or an Asian woman or whatever the case was. Okay, and again, I don't want to. I want don't want don't want that to sound like that person. Uh, was not going to be successful um, or wasn't qualified to do the job. Although there were a couple instances, I, I like I said, I know one guy, um, I wouldn't call him a friend, but definitely a strong acquaintance that left uh, an organization because he was promoted. He was pressured to apply for a job. So he wasn't even going to apply because he didn't think he could do it. He was pressured to apply for it. Then he was given the job over several other more qualified individuals, two of which were in the same department. And those two basically decided once he got the job that they were going to do the bare minimum. Uh, They were not going to help train him to do the job they were passed over for. Um, And he ended up leaving that company because about eight months in, he was just like, you know what? I I just, I'm not happy because I'm not good at this job. I, I would have been happier at the job that I was in before I was pressured to take this one. And so there's a lot of that going on. And they talked about in the article that the, um, the percentage white a company was had gone down pretty much across the board. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think that when you've got 50% of the population accounting for, you know, 75% of the jobs, then, you know, there, there might be some institutional racism type things going on there. And when I say institutional racism, I don't mean the system is racist. I'm saying that there might be some processes built into the HR matrix that disadvantage some people over other people. Right. And the closer that we can do, or the closer that we can get to something that better represents, uh, the overall talent pool for a job, the better. And so this is where a place where I really enjoy some of the stuff that Jordan Peterson says, because he says you shouldn't look for there to be equitable distribution 
uh, within a certain job because people have different interests. Women are going to be interested in different things than, than men are as a total block. And so the fact that you're going to have a disparate outcomes um, in terms of who has what jobs is fine. The problem comes in when you have a bunch of people that are equally qualified to do a job and, and a certain segment of that population is advantaged over the other, right? And so the story that we're told is that um, white, heterosexual, um, cisgendered men, I think that's all of them, I think I checked all the boxes there, um, are, uh, are, are, are where the power structure in America lies and they have the power. They have all the best jobs. They have all the CEO slots. They have all the directors of the boards and they have all this stuff, right? Now, what I would say is, is that some of the actual racism that existed in the fifties and sixties, uh, has directly led to, the talent pool for someone, for example, for a director of the board slot um, to be filled predominantly by white men. Okay, I, I will agree with that. But I think that because white men were getting their MBAs in 1968 at a much higher rate than black men or women uh, or Hispanics, men or women, um, means that the available people to do the jobs that lead you to those positions of power, right, uh, was really tilted more towards white men in the 70s and in the early 80s. And then as we have fought and identified and adjusted uh, racism and, and, you know, called out actual racism and, and, and tried hard to eliminate it, that what you end up with now is there's still a bit of an echo of, you know, the civil rights movement and the things that were going on before uh, the results of the civil rights movement happened. And I think that you've got that, you know, when you look at the CEOs, uh, which by and large are like boomers, okay, um, you look at those CEOs and say, okay, well, they're all white. Well, that's not because the company's racist. It means it's it's primarily because racism actually did exist both within companies and within uh, institutions of higher learning during the period of time that those people were coming up, right? And the fact that we could have very well, and I'm not saying we have, but let's just say we have eliminated all racism, period, end of story. There's none anywhere, right? Like in the world that that happened, you're still going to have more 70-year-olds today with advanced degrees and 40 years in the business that they're trying to run that are white, that males, than anything else, okay? Because of what was going on 50 and 60 years ago, okay? That doesn't mean that those companies are racist, again. And so, um, so when I look at this report, you know, I'm immediately skeptical because I'm like, okay, 88 out of a hundred. Well, that's, you know, okay. Why didn't you use those other 12? That's number one. Number two, I think the form that gets filled out is optional. And I think that in 2021, 
if you are reading about a company having a, a, a stated goal of hiring uh, a black people or people of color uh, and, and women, you would probably, and you were, and you fit into one of those categories, you would probably be more likely to fill that form out. Right. And so is this a, because we're looking at this specific period of time, is this a, an outcome that is really driven by that? Right. So I remember hearing Joe Rogan say one time, like never believe anything that you read in a poll because who the hell answers polls. Right. Um, Number one, who gets called at the house and asked about a poll? And then number two, who does anything other than say F your mom and hang up was the joke, right? And he's like, that's the proper answer to a pollster that calls your house. And so um, so I'm immediately skeptical of the results. But even outside of that, um, I would say, okay, are, are the results skewed because of who are filling the forms out? Are the results skewed because of, um, you know, how the stuff was reported or the fact that they left 12 companies out or that of the tens of thousands of companies like, okay, so I don't want to go too off on the rabbit hole of my skepticism, but then, then I go back to the other side of it, which is, okay, let's say this, let's, let's say this is actual real data. Well, is it right? Like what would lead to 94% of the jobs in the S&P 500 in 2021 being filled by non-white people. I mean, I think that you could say there might be some racism there that we should look into. Okay. I'm not saying there is racism. I'm saying there could absolutely be logical reasons. And this is probably the biggest difference between someone like me, who's more of like anarcho-capitalist, Versus someone that's kind of like a Marxist or, or someone that says, well, all you have to do to find racism is just look at the results. And if there's three people that are doing something and two of them are white and one of them is black, then because twice as many people are doing that thing than black people, uh, it's automatically racist, right? Like that's what they think. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that's a pretty huge number. Uh, 94% of the jobs being filled by, and I don't know what the stats are this the, today, but I think, you know, uh, people that identify as white slash Caucasian or whatever are like, what, 48% of the population. So if 52% of the population is getting 94% of the jobs, what's going on there? Are these corporations actively looking to not put white people in these roles? Or... Are these corporations actively recruiting different demographics of people that they hadn't before and finding really good candidates for the jobs that just also happen to not be white, that their recruiting efforts are actually working? Okay. Uh, and, and I brought this one up. I know this is going to be divisive. I don't know if I'm going to lose listeners off of this. But I brought it up because I think it's important when you see these things, A, to not jump to conclusions, B, to have a pretty healthy set of skepticism about the actual facts and the motivations of the person that's reporting the data. Um, but then even if you accept the facts as they're written and, and you accept the data as it's presented, to have an open mind about what could be the cause. Now, I, <laughs> I've also been accused 
of being way too trusting of an individual, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys where I think there's a lot of gray area. And because I think there's so much gray area in things, to convince me of, that something is black and white, you got to show me proof. Like, I want a smoking gun, okay? Um, and anyways, I think, I think I've probably gone on. Let's see. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm nearly at 48 minutes. You know what, guys? I am going to go ahead and wrap it up there for today. Um, I thank you all for joining. Please send me emails at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com. I want to... I want to get feedback on this episode in particular. I don't know if I've done a kind of current events episode, but as I've been thinking about how I want to structure the podcast long term, I was thinking maybe like once a week, maybe on Mondays, I do a, a more of a what's going on right now and critical thinking podcast. So please send me some feedback on this episode. Let me know um, what you think about it. And uh, yeah, with that, I'll wrap it up and we'll talk to you next time.